Now, let's hear from our last caller, history teacher Jennifer Banowitz. Hi, Backstory. This is Jennifer Banowitz. I'm calling from Chicago. I chose the two episodes called Contested Landscapes. I found the episodes valuable because the hosts and the guest speakers were able to explain the history behind the flags and the statues, while at the same time examining the emotional attachment to those objects. Many people use history to support their actions or justify their decisions. What is often missing in someone's understanding of history is the context of that specific event, or that person cannot separate their emotional attachment to the event and be able to look at it objectively. I will miss the new episodes very much, but I'm happy to have all those old podcasts to still listen to. So thanks very much, everyone. Boy, Jennifer, lucky our podcast is ending because you're angling for my job as co-host. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful, insightful way of introducing this next segment, which I suppose couldn't be more timely because we're wrestling really with these topics right now. So without further ado, here's the segment, Flags of Our Forefathers, from our show, Contested Landscape. I start this one off. We're going to turn now to the history of the Confederate flag, but it's probably not the one you're picturing. There's a, a, an amazing variety of Confederate flags, plural. This is John Kosky author of The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem, and historian at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. For full disclosure, I should mention here that I'm chair of the board of that museum. Anyway, I met John at the museum where, it is true, there is an incredible array of Confederate flags. One thing about Confederate flags for people who study 1860s Confederate flags, there were lots and lots of them. The story of the flag, or flags, began in 1861. That's when the Confederate Congress formed a committee to solicit designs for a national flag, one that could rally the South to its cause. Some fought for a design that was entirely new and distinctively Southern, such as a palmetto tree. But most Confederates preferred something that looked familiar. White Southerners of the Confederacy in 1861 still thought of themselves as Americans, as very much as citizens of the United States who helped form the United States. And they did not want to yield to the Yankees the symbols of the once united nation. So they need to be weaned, if you will, from the symbols of the old United States. The committee ended up picking a design that looked a lot like the United States flag. Kosky showed me the design. 13 white stars on a blue canton in the upper left-hand corner. Instead of 13 red and white stripes, however, there are just three. Three big bars, uh, red, white, and red from top to bottom. One of the flags that was rejected was designed by South Carolina Congressman William Porsche Miles. His design eventually became the Confederate flag that we think of today. A red field, crossed with blue stripes, filled with white stars. Miles was furious with the committee's choice. Miles could not believe that his own nation, his own committee, would choose that flag because it resembled the stars and stripes and, yeah. in so many words, told them you'll regret it, and they did. It turns out that choosing a flag in wartime was a complicated business. Now, typically, national flags are also battle flags. And, of course, a battle flag, by uh, definition, was supposed to be something distinctive that allowed leaders on the field to maneuver their troops, identify and distinguish 
friend from enemy. Imagine you're a soldier facing enemy fire. You can barely hear your orders over the gunfire. You can't see through the smoke, but you do see flashes of color waving over the melee. Is that the flag of the enemy heading straight for you? It was a dramatic moment to see these flags. And of course, for the on the receiving end, it was scary as hell to see these, these units coming at you. In an effort to strike at the morale of the enemy, you fire into the crowd, hoping to hit the flag bearer. But then you realize that you fired on your own troops because your flag and your enemy's flag are so hard to tell apart. And when you have two flags that look so much like each other, especially in the smoke of battle, it defeated the purpose. Fortunately, individual divisions and armies designed and carried their own flags. There was the 1st Florida Volunteer Division, 3rd Kentucky Mounted, 10th Tennessee Irish Infantry, and on and on. Out of this profusion, William Porsche Miles's flag was chosen as the battle flag for the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee's army. The one that gave the South its most uh, stunning victories and, in the long run, kept the South alive. Lee's success made Miles's flag hugely popular throughout the Confederacy. The Confederate nation, the populace, uh, saw in that flag not only the sacrifices of the men who fought under it, but the hopes for actually winning this war and achieving Confederate independence. In 1863, the Confederate Congress incorporated the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia into the official flag of the Confederacy. At Miles's request, the tilted blue cross and red background were placed in the upper left-hand corner. The rest of the flag was white. Uh, did no one point out that it looks like a flag of surrender at the time? Not at the time. It, it wasn't until late 1864 that uh, the voices rose uh, more loudly to point out that it looks like a flag of surrender, which, of course, was a little too close to the truth about that time as the Confederacy began to collapse. And it would be so nice for compromise today if we could say that flag is the flag of the soldier and not the flag of the nation. That's exactly what today's flag defenders say, that it stood for the soldier, not for the Confederacy. Here's Jeff O'Kane, former head of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, on NBC News two years ago. Now, this was when South Carolina took down the Confederate battle flag from its state house grounds. The flag had flown there for 54 years. It's a war memorial to honor 25,000 men. A quarter of the men in South Carolina died to protect this state. But there's a lot more to the story. It meant so much to those men who fought and marched under it, that emotional attachment that battle flags have. But because it was emblazoned on the national flag, it also did stand for the Confederate nation. You cannot separate the two. There's no way around it. There is no clean break between the flag of the soldier and the flag of the nation. And that's not John Koski historian looking back. That is true because of the act of the Confederate leaders themselves. But in the 150 years since the Civil War, the meaning of the Confederate battle flag has morphed. Koski says fights over the flag symbolism are rooted in a misunderstanding of its history. And for some people, it is the history of the Confederate soldier on the battlefield. For others, it is the history of the Dukes of Hazard. For others, it's the history of a motorcyclist trying to make a statement about his independence. And for others, very clearly, it's the experience of encountering that flag in the hands of people who meant to do them harm. 
John Kosky says that all these meanings depend on which part of the flag's history you're talking about. One thing about the evolution of the Confederate flag over time is that it's not a substitution of meanings. It's an accretion, an aggregation of meanings, one after another. So we're going to chart those many meanings through, let's call it, three acts in the flag's evolution. Act one, a sacred artifact of war. The move towards that is already beginning in 1890. This is historian Mari McInnes. She says that after the Civil War, flags that had been flown in battle were locked up in the War Department in Washington. Some were controlled by heritage organizations, such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And these flags were only unfurled during solemn commemorative ceremonies, such as funerals, reenactments, and statue dedications. Remember that towering bronze Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond? McGinnis says that on the day it was unveiled, in 1890... The Confederate battle flag was on massive display. The city was overwhelmingly draped in the Confederate flag, Confederate music, Confederate uniforms. Northern journalists in attendance were shocked to see so many flags being waved so passionately. Many of them were writing about the flag of treason, that they could not believe that the flag of treason was being almost worshipped um, as an idolatrous god. The event, which lasted a week, didn't escape the notice of African-American journalists either. And they, too, were so distressed at the reappearance of the Confederate flag. What was the meaning of this for them? Because at the time, in 1890, they were still feeling fairly hopeful about their political futures and their inclusion in the citizenship. Commemorations such as this troubled African Americans and Northerners, but the flag was rarely displayed outside of such formal events. By the middle of the 20th century, however, the flag started appearing in other places, and as that image spread, heritage organizations lost control of its meaning. Which brings us to Act Two. College football. College students seem to be the best beginnings of proliferation. Specifically, college students at Kappa Alpha, a fraternity formed at Washington and Lee University in 1870. This was just after Robert E. Lee died. The fraternity was founded as a heritage organization, and the flag was a symbol of Kappa Alpha pride. By the 1920s, Kappa Alpha was, chapters around the South were using it in their college rituals. When Latter-day members of Kappa Alpha were drafted in World War II, they brought along the Confederate flag. And that's when they lost control over its meaning. Other soldiers adopted the flag as a symbol for all things white and Southern. When Southern soldiers returned from the war and went to college under the GI Bill, they brought the flag to one of peacetime's most contested grounds, the gridiron. In 1947, Harvard's football team traveled south to play the University of Virginia. UVA fans waved the flag of Southern pride with gusto, as was their tradition. But this time, things were different. Harvard had an African-American football player named Chester Pierce, a star football player. Taking to the field, Pierce and his teammates looked up and saw a sea of Confederate battle flags and rowdy students. And very widely in the northern press, 
uh, it was assumed that this was some kind of gesture, uh, if not a racist gesture, taunting of Chester Pierce with Confederate battle flags. The team worried about Pierce's safety and braced for racist threats. But according to Pierce, the game was pretty much like any other. And uh, UVA stalwarts were very defensive in saying, no, this has been part of our football tradition in recent years. Kosky says in the late 1940s, the flag's meaning was ambiguous. And so it was, a, it was at a pivotal point in the flag's history where it, was, it, it anticipated uh, a time in which the flag was, had a more sinister meaning. Even if, even if the, the UVA fans who used that flag did not mean it in a sinister way, uh, others were beginning to do so. Which brings us to Act 3 in the flag's afterlife, desegregation. In 1948, the Confederate flag's more sinister meaning resurfaced. That was the year that the Democratic Party formally included civil rights in its platform. Now, some white Southerners protested and formed the state's rights Democratic Party, commonly referred to as the Dixiecrats. That first convention in Birmingham, Alabama, was awash in Confederate battle flags. They were carried into the convention by college students. So there was a direct pipeline, if you will, from colleges already accustomed to the use of the battle flag as a football symbol, for example, and part of collegiate life to make it a very highly charged political symbol in the Dixiecrat party. It will surprise no one that the Ku Klux Klan had also embraced the flag at this time. Today, it's a common argument that the flag is only a racist symbol when it's in their hands. But Kosky points out that if Klansmen were the only ones using the flag as a symbol of hatred, it would be easier to ignore. The trouble is... It wasn't just the Klan. Almost every major and minor incident of the civil rights era Ordinary white Southerners were using that flag to speak to their opposition to civil rights. Around this time, the Confederate battle flag became an embedded symbol of pop culture. The Confederate flag was everywhere. It wasn't in the black community, but as soon as you left the black community. This is historian Brenda Stevenson. She grew up in Virginia in the 1960s as the country was struggling to integrate. And even when we integrated the schools, when we first came into contact with, you know, white children on a daily basis, Confederate flags were everywhere in their lockers. They would draw them on their notebooks, you know, shirts, uh, T-shirts that had them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a great symbol, of course, of the Confederacy and also of apartheid, of the racial apartheid we had all been living in. It's worth remembering that leaders of the Confederacy struggled to apply one meaning, the identity of the Confederate nation, to many flags throughout the war. Today, Americans have a different challenge. What to do with this one flag that has so many meanings? Brenda Stevenson says that struggle is especially difficult because so many people are so invested in the flag's many meanings. You know, there is a place for people whose ancestors were in the Confederacy, for, for the Confederacy. There is a place for that history in U.S. history. It's part of U.S. history. But it has to be in conversation with the other heritages, even those that are oppositional, and particularly those that are oppositional to that Confederate um, heritage.
Brendan Stevenson is a historian at UCLA. Also helping us tell that story were John Kosky, historian at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, and Mari McInnes, provost at the University of Texas, Austin. 